Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The new fully electric Audi e-tron GT. Enjoy the breathtaking performance and design of the future of electric mobility from Audi. With Quattro-inspired flared wheel arches and matrix design LED headlights, every element has been carefully considered and selected to help deliver a thrilling drive. And with an acceleration of 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 4.1 seconds, the Audi e-tron GT is performance electrified. Start the future now and visit audi.ca to learn more. The amount of money flowing into funds that market themselves as sustainable investing funds is rapidly increasing. But are these funds having any impact on the world? I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to a skeptic, and not just any skeptic. Tarek Fancy used to be Chief Investment Officer for Sustainable Investing at BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world with almost $9 trillion under management. Today, he runs an educational nonprofit from his home in Toronto. It's called the Rumi Initiative. It's free, it's online, and you can check it out at rumi.org if you want to learn more. My interview with Fancy focused on what he learned while at BlackRock and what he thinks about ESG, the acronym for Environment, Sustainability, and Governance that's guiding a lot of investment right now. Ultimately, he comes to the conclusion that ESG is a distraction from the real work of fighting climate change. As always, our interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Tarek Fancy, it's a pleasure to have you on Down to Business today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. So it's no secret that sustainable investing is kind of a big theme in the investment community these days. You hear about it at conferences. It's on the front page of news sometimes. But you're a skeptic, I think it's fair to say. And and in your own words, you've said sustainable investing boils down to little more than marketing hype, PR spin, and disingenuous promises from the investment community. Can you maybe briefly summarize your views? Yeah, it's, you know, it's sustainable investing it generally is the idea of providing more capital to and advancing causes under the sustainability umbrella. For example, fighting climate change, creating better environmental outcomes. Uh, it also includes creating better social outcomes. And it's generally the idea of, you, of, of implementing ESG or, you know, environmental, social and governance standards. Uh, onto companies and products and capital flows in the most broad sense. And so it sounds like a fascinating idea that, of course, we need more of um, so that we can use the gears of capitalism to bring more capital and, and more opportunity to the sorts of businesses and business activities that we want to see more of in the economy going forward. The reality is that the way it's actually constructed in the industry, it actually amounts to little more than marketing. Because, you know, you have a set of tools and standards and ideas around it that could be helpful. They move in the right direction. The structure of the investment industry today and the way these products are structured, they don't actually produce any real outcomes at all that would not have otherwise happened, right? There's an idea in the impact space of additionality, which is the idea that by doing something, some intervention or moving your money from this bucket of money to the other bucket of money, you're creating something additional that would not have otherwise happened in the world. And for the 
the majority of what is considered sustainable investing today, uh, they don't meet that test, right? So there's this promise of doing well by doing good. And what I've seen is that the doing well part is working. Wall Street is growing this entire area, both because it's great for marketing and PR for those firms themselves, and also more importantly, because they can sell products at higher fees, right? With premium price fees on the promise that they're achieving some kind of green green goals and the doing good part, which is the second part of it, is actually not being fulfilled because there's no way to quantify actually that this does anything that would not have otherwise happened. And people who know how the mechanics of these funds know that, um, but you see very little actually discussion of it uh, in the public space. Okay. Okay. So let's go back to the beginning for a second. You used to be the chief investment officer of sustainable investing for BlackRock, like the largest asset manager in the world. Can you explain a little bit about what that role entailed? So my role there was uh, to work alongside all the different investment teams to help them to integrate ESG into their different investment processes. So that was one big part of it. And that was a fascinating experience because as a former investor myself, you know, having spent most of my career working in the U.S., but I am Canadian and so I... I um, had come back for a period and, and helped build strategies at Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. I had experience of looking at different asset classes just purely as an investor, right? Not, not with an ESG focus. I then had spent time before joining BlackRock. I left and created a, a nonprofit education organization called Rumi, which I now run, which is a real passion project. And so I had kind of had experience on both sides. I'd created investment strategies and very strong financial returns and investment returns. And then I'd also found myself in the unusual position of having Build social bottom lines from the ground up at you know an organization where now our, our technology is being used in over 100 countries, even at home in Canada, in, in indigenous communities. And so in some sense, when I was looking at working across our different investment verticals, the goal was sort of, in a sense, to combine those two backgrounds, right? Can, I, can, can we build better investment outcomes by using more ESG data in a way that then creates better returns and better outcomes for society? At least that was sort of generally the promise and then as a part of that, we would not just implement ESG across all of our existing investment vehicles and products, which is, you know, around $9 trillion today. So it's a fascinating sort of vantage point, you know, the, of the largest asset manager in history, which kind of operates like a microcosm of capitalism. We would also then start launching new products that were uh, now are in the hundreds of billions and fast, fast growing that are specifically green and generally have higher fees under the promise of achieving some kind of, uh, of you know, positive social or environmental outcome. And let me just stop you for a second. When you talk about like new products and asset classes, I mean, what you're talking about is launching funds for investors, retail, or maybe they're at a public pension somewhere and say like, here, look, if you put money into this fund, it will invest in renewable energy or it will invest in indigenous led businesses or something like that, right? Is that typically what we're talking about? That's exactly it. Yeah. And, and the biggest category of those is, of course, really around climate, right? So it's the E and ESG where there is a lot of movement. So people want to see more funds going towards uh, either, either you know, where you, you can invest less, less towards fossil fuel players. And so you lower the carbon footprint of your portfolio and or you are then you know, the corollary to that is you're, is you're tilting towards and providing more capital to sort of companies that are either lower carbon emitters and or 
producing sort of technology that is aligned with a better better environmental outcomes. And so it's generally in the green space, but there's also a significant growing area around just broadly ESG, right? Which just says, hey, we can take ESG scores and we can allow you to invest your money in a way that you now, your investment portfolio has a better ESG profile. Right. And so, but you came to the conclusion at some point that it's not having an impact. And I'm wondering if there was like a particular moment when you decided that or what it was that drove you to decide, actually, this is all a bunch of marketing hype. As I went inside the machine and tried to incorporate ESG across all these investment areas, one thing struck me, which was that there was not a lot of use to the data. Right. Everyone was saying, oh, ESG information is now the new thing. Like every investor needs to use this information. And it was wrapped up in a bigger thesis that is important to highlight. And that thesis is that business is effectively saying it is, it is profitable to be responsible. So the challenging thing with the financial space, right, is that there's all this jargon. But when they say, you know, ESG is good for investment returns, which was my task of doing that across nine trillion. It's, a, it's just a proxy for saying, you know, uh, or, or responsible companies are more profitable. And so I went in and found that that was not true. And really, there was two main reasons. Number one, it was because fundamentally, we know that the challenge in the economy is that oftentimes there are profitable activities that are patently irresponsible, right? Whether it's, you know, again, fossil fuel players that who are creating pollution for which they're not paying the social costs for that, right? Um, through the form of some kind of a tax or a price on that pollution that is going to clearly cause damage to society just to frankly different generations in the future. Uh, and on top of that, I also found that the investment process was a very odd place to do it. And that's, this is an important point is that generally speaking, most strategies are very short term. You don't really care about ESG because you don't have to care about ESG, right? Cause it's, it's like, okay, 20 years from now, something bad happens. That's fine. It's bad for the world, but the investment professional making the decision, this is important. They're constrained by legal obligations as well as frankly, they're financially incentivized to focus only on return, right? That's, that's how the system works. They're using other people's retirement money. So they can't focus on values, right? Because everybody has different values and, and that's hard to measure. They have to focus on dollar value, right? It's clear. It's quantifiable. You're legally constrained because it's someone else's money. And you could see very well that like for most of these strategies, it didn't matter what senior management was saying or the marketing team was saying or anyone else, you get into the machine and you realize that actually there's not much that they can do and it's kind of being oversold. And I felt like one of the reasons that I noticed this was because I actually had an investment background and bizarrely, most of the space around ESG had very few people who had ever invested money before. I mean, they had a few people that kind of a mutual fund background you know, I came from private equity background, having done distressed or vulture investing. It just kind of happened by accident. I, I finished investment banking and then got hired by a client. And that side of investing tends to be the most skeptical because you're used to sort of, if you're looking at distressed or bankrupt companies, you're quite, you know, attuned to digging through marketing, right? And looking, you know, past that to the actual numbers and the, and the incentives. And it started to become very clear to me that as a, as a former investor, that number one, there wasn't much value from an investment perspective. And number two, that not many people had seen that because A, it was really a marketing function in most places. Number two, most of the people doing it were sustainability people, marketing people, you know, people who are great and they have the right skill sets, but you can't not have people with hardcore investment experience doing it, right? It'd be kind of like if Facebook had an ethical programming division and every tech company had an ethical programming division. 
and you say, oh, wow, that sounds great. They must be doing nice things. And then you go in and you realize like not one person in that division has ever written a line of code before, right? You start to become a little bit skeptical because you get a coder and they look in and they say, well, this doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, no, that, that analogy makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. But so, I mean, what you sort of described was this issue of short-termism that our whole financial investment is, is always focused on quarters, which is a very short time frame. It's not the duration of, of a company's lifetime. And I'm wondering if you think that this is the sort of single bigger issue that needs to be addressed maybe before the financial industry can really do something about climate change or some of these other issues you mentioned? I think, I think it is a central issue. One of the central, one of the first central issues before that is market failures need to be corrected. And we've known since, you know, the 20th century that we needed some kind of a price on carbon. Otherwise you don't change this. You don't change the incentives of the system, like a truly effective market-based solution, according to every economist from Arthur Pigou to Hayek to Milton Friedman and Adam Smith would be that you have to correct that externality when it becomes clear. So you, so you definitely need to do that in order to make less responsible things less profitable, right? Because otherwise capital will keep flowing to them just based on how the system works. But the second big piece that works exactly in line with that, in line with that is, is that, as you mentioned, is the short-termism, right? Think of it this way. If just looking at the overall business space, the average CEO tenure is now around five years. That's the shortest it's been in decades. The average CEO pay is around 320 times the average worker in that industry. That's the highest it's been in decades, right? So if you look at that, you have senior managers who, uh, who are not incentivized to think about long-term issues, which is really where sustainability issues lie, right? If, if, you're, if you're getting paid out in the next five years, and that, by the way, is you're getting paid out in five years, what used to be you know, a CEO getting paid out in, in 10 or 15 years, are you really paid to think about things that happen 10 or 20 years from now? And isn't it cheaper to just market yourself as being green and good and so on, rather than to actually make those long-term investments that truly make you, you know, that, that make a more sustainable company? And in the short term, the marketing incentive is much greater and it gets everything you need done, right? And so that, that, that's a giant concern. That, right. That is what you said, right? That, that there's this sort of greenwashing, which... What sort are there specific policies that you think the government could enact that would help the markets address climate change? I think that the most effective thing that the government can do is actually think about how to regulate business activities so that they serve the long-term public interest. And what's important about that is I don't actually think that as much regulation needs to happen on the Wall Street side. You know, Wall Street and the financial services industry, they sit in between savers, right? All of our money, our, our bank deposits, uh, pensions that are managed on our behalf, and the productive uses of the capital in the economy. And they're structured from the ground up to just focus on profit and yield, right? Max, finding the most attractive opportunities based on dollar values and maximizing them for a particular risk tolerance and, and time horizon. They've always done that. That's what they'll always do. Generally speaking, the simplest thing is that if you want less capital flowing to activities that we want to have less of in the future, you just need to find a way to make it less profitable, right? And, you know, Goldman Sachs will react to that. I mean, I put zero stock, and I don't mean this in a bad way. I have a lot of friends at Goldman. I put zero stock in if they say that we're going to do something ethical or we're going to do this or that voluntarily. It's just not how the system works. The system is built so that they will try to maximize profits. And that's not an individual question of good or bad people. It's just a systemic question of, You've structured the machine 
where all of the incentives of the people in that machine are very carefully tailored to get them to go and squeeze out and extract profits. So the reality is, you know, if you go to the 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 activities that we want less of and you start to regulate them. So you say, we need less emissions. Let's just put a price on carbon. Well, every portfolio manager on Wall Street will react to that because suddenly emitting carbon is less profitable. If you tell them, hey, um, we need vehicle emissions limits and you know all electric cars from by 2030 or 2035, business will figure out the most effective way through the existing you know playing field of competition to do that, right? But government needs to give that guidance and it needs to make it mandatory. And right now, instead of that actually happening, we're seeing a set of ideas that say that business will do it all voluntarily because this is this wonderful opportunity and the green thing is going to be a big moneymaker. And let's let's be 100% clear. It's not going to be a moneymaker, right? Like it's kind of like COVID-19, right? Like it's been terrible for economies, but you know, Zoom and a few companies that were providing solutions to it did, did well, right? Same thing, climate change, like there will be opportunities, but on the whole, it's going to cost us money. And we know that. That's why it's an inconvenient truth. And that's why, you know, Morgan Stanley estimates it'll cost $50 trillion to decarbonize the world economy. But in a situation like that, where it's going to cost money, it's a long-term issue. The system is structured short-term. The system is structured to squeeze out profits. It will never do it on its own without someone correcting the market failure. And that has to be government policy. And, and my concern is that as long as the business community keeps going out there and selling a fantasy that, you know, this is so profitable that everyone's going to do it on their own. And stakeholder capitalism is the latest thing out of the U.S. Business Roundtable. They make no sense inside the machine. Like, they actually make literally no sense. They seem attempts to, from the best I can tell, to maintain the status quo and delay government regulation. Because particularly in the U.S., I'm not going to absolve Canadian business entirely, but in the U.S., there is a set of theses that have existed for decades that say that, you know, the only good government is small government, right? And, you know, that, that just push incessantly against taxes and regulation to a point that is now far past any level that makes any sense, right? And is now has the system creaking at the seams, particularly on the political level with rising inequality, nothing being done on climate change. And I do think that we are seeing a return to government playing a role. And I don't think we should see that as a negative thing. I think some people will say, if you're a baby boomer CEO, you're going to see that as a negative thing. And I'll tell every single one of those baby boomer CEOs to their face, I'll say, listen, it's a bad thing for you. It's not a bad thing for your 25-year-old employee because they benefit the least from the status quo and they're the most exposed to the consequences of inaction. And that creates to me a, a, a deep intergenerational fairness because the business community consists of younger people. And you know, unless these problems are fixed, um, they will be left holding the bag. Are you hopeful that coming out of this pandemic where we have sort of thought a lot of people, it's forced some realizations on us about the way our society operates. Are, are you hopeful that some views could change about these issues? I, I really am. And the reason that I am is because we have seen through COVID-19, the dangers of systemic crises. A systemic crisis is one that needs a systemic solution, right? That we need government to solve. And so that could be a pandemic. It could be a climate crisis. It could be, you know, an alien invasion, right? Those are the sorts of things where you can't just leave it to the free market, right? The government needs to step in. And with the pandemic, we saw that there was a systemic crisis where we needed to flatten the curve of something that was damaging, that was damaging to us. And, we, and it was infections. You couldn't leave it to the quote-unquote free market, right? We needed to restrict travel. We needed to uh, make masks mandatory indoors. We had to close high-risk venues. 
These were all government using its extraordinary powers for which it has democratic legitimacy to do to protect the public interest, right? None of us liked it. Then while they were doing that, they had Operation Warp Speed in the US and other places and those galvanized the pharma sector to go and do the, you know, to create vaccines by having emergency approval processes, by providing capital directly to companies to do this, by pre-ordering from all the companies. So the U.S. ordered nearly a billion vaccines, right, um, from each different company so that none of them would be worried about having to innovate and losing out in the end. So they all were r- running the same race, and we had a bunch of you know horses that were going to head towards the finish line that could give us a solution. On climate change, the reason I'm confident now is that there's really no argument anymore to say that we can leave a systemic crisis and a curve we need to bend, in this case, the greenhouse gas emissions curve, and just leave it to the free market. Like It clearly has not worked in the last decade or two. The biggest difference between climate change and COVID is the incubation period. One takes a few weeks, one takes a few decades. And I think that the, that it's very difficult for people to make an argument at this point that we don't need government action on the climate crisis if they have all gone and said we did need it for COVID-19, which is pretty much the entire business community in the U.S. who have generally been quite resistant to to this argument and now are sort of finding themselves in a bit of a corner. Yeah. Well, this is a fascinating discussion and I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Tarek Fancy, the former head of sustainable investing for BlackRock. Thanks for listening to this episode of Down to Business and thanks to the team that made it possible. Bryce Hall for music and production. Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. Give us a rating if you liked us, that is, and share this episode if you want to support the Down to Business podcast. And if you want all your news delivered to your inbox once a week, consider signing up for one of the Financial Post newsletters. You can find a link on the webpage for this podcast. I'm Gabe Friedman. I'll be back next week. And until then, get all your business news at financialpost.com.